Our worship continues now with the public reading and study of the Word of God. Uh, the service takes a, a change. Instead of us speaking to the Lord, it's now His opportunity and time to speak to us. We honor Him by opening our ears and our hearts to hear what God has to say to His people. The words will appear on the screen. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. And our second reading is taken, appropriately enough, from the book of Zechariah chapters 13 and 14. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. I will gather the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will be not taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split into two, from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountains moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and the holy ones with him. On that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the east, to the Dead Sea, 
and half of it to the west, to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. The whole land from Geva to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up high from the Benjamin gate to the side of the first gate, to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the the royal wine presses and will remain in its place. It It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize one another by the hand and attack one another. Judah, too, will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all surrounding nations will be collected, great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and the mules, the camels and the donkeys, and all the animals in those camps. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. If any of these people, peoples of the earth, do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. And if the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This surely is the word of the Lord. Our third reading from the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, 
the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. These were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Well, I'm famous for 27-point sermons that go on for more than an hour. So if you're under 40 and you want to escape, <laughs> do so now. So um, we, invite, we invite the kids and those who want to use adult coloring books to, to get out while you can. <coughs> and let's pray. So Father in heaven, we ask that uh, on this last day of Sukkot, not only will you give us joy, but you will focus our attention and once again remind us of the privilege and the joy that we have to serve you and to be your witnesses in this world. And Lord, we ask that um, as you've called each one of us and given each one of us special gifts, we ask that not only will you reconfirm that calling, but Lord, we ask that uh, your Holy Spirit will indeed fill us and empower us and just give us wisdom and discernment, Lord, to do those things that you have called us to do at this time. Lord, we pray that we will not be confused or slack or lazy or disappointed or discouraged. Help us in these things, we pray. Amen. Well, as we all know,
Sukkot is party time, and uh, we certainly emphasize that last week, the place of joy, the place of celebration, the place of coming uh, to Jerusalem and sitting in a sukkah and allowing God to rule and reign over us and to express gratitude yes, for what the Lord has done for us. And last week we talked about some of the things that sometimes prevent us from being joyful and uh, oftentimes uh, it's our distractions, our worries, our concerns, uh, our fears, yes, our fear of provision, lack of provision, uh, our lack of security, our worries about identity, and further, sometimes it's a uh, sort of a grudging uh, lack of appreciation. And we often say to the Lord, you know, I should be thankful, and I am thankful a little bit, but you know, I really deserve more. I really deserve more, and why are you holding back on me? Okay, and uh, I think all of that really feeds into uh, the remarks that we want to say today, because this great happy feast day, yes, is a, a um, celebration not only about Israel and God's provision for Israel, God's care for his people and the most unlikely place, right? God provided for the children of Israel, not in a land of Walmarts or shopping malls or Amazon drone service, but God provided for the people of Israel in the midst of scarcity, in the midst of a wilderness. And uh, those are things to be thankful for because the same God that worked on behalf of the children of Israel 3,000 years ago is the same God who, who um, blesses us and cares for us in exactly the same way, even in the midst of our scarcity. And so, wonderful feast, feast of, uh, of a past event. But as we mentioned last week, it's a feast that has an eschatological future. It's a feast that, that celebrates not just the ingathering of Israel and God's work amongst the Jewish people, but it celebrates the ingathering of the nations. Yes? Now, in last, in, few, in last few years, people have been rightly, you might say, um, focused on what the Lord is doing amongst the Jewish people. And that's sort of a corrective that uh, we, we needed in the life of the church for hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousand years or more. But in the process, we might forget that just as there's an ingathering of Israel and the Jewish people, there's also an ingathering of the nations and God's work amongst the nations. And it is this feast that, um, at least in the second temple period when Jesus lived, it was this feast that um, 70 bulls were sacrificed on behalf of the nations. Yes, because in traditional Jewish biblical thinking, there are 
70 nations, yes? And we're not talking about nations as we understand them today, like the Netherlands or France or um, Canada. We're talking about ethnic groups. Um, so that's probably something that we should keep in mind as we go, uh, go a little further this morning. And there's Jewish, uh, in the Jewish liturgy, Jewish prayers, uh, you have prayers for the nations and the welfare of the nations because that Jewish liturgy understands a great biblical truth which is reflected all throughout the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament as well as in certain parts of the New Testament, in fact in many parts of the New Testament, that the fate of Israel and the fate of the nations are intertwined together. There's a mutuality and an interdependence, yes, that uh, is not fully clear to us. It's something of a mystery, as Paul would call it, in the book of Romans, the famous chapter, chapter 11. And when I say Israel, I don't necessarily mean the state of Israel. I'm talking about the people of Israel, but talking about the people of Israel, it's not, it's pretty difficult to leave out the modern current state of, of Israel and the Jewish people. And all of this, of course, comes, is derived or uh, generated, you might say, by the reading from Zechariah, which wasn't a very pleasant reading in some ways because it was about judgment, uh, but it was about um, God's punishment of the nations, but also it's about ultimately about God's victory because all the nations are coming up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And what's implied in all that, right, what's implicit in that is that these nations are coming up to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles just as the Jewish people did. And the reason that Jews came up to Jerusalem at this time of the year was one to express their gratitude and by the way, as we mentioned last week, the best way to be grateful, yeah, the best way to be grateful is by being joyful. Is that uh, true? Can you just imagine, you know, thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for me. I'm really miserable, but I know you're, I know you're really good to me. And I do deserve more, by the way. <clears throat> I don't deserve it, Lord, but really I do deserve more. <clears throat> People are conflicted about these things, are, are we not? And these nations come up to say thank you to the Lord. But the, you might say the real purpose of coming up and pilgrimage was to appear before the Lord. As one appears before a king, as one uh, comes to... Um, give honor and to um, um, express, you know, loyalty or to say that I am your subject, you are my king, you are my sovereign, etc., etc. So all of this is a, a wonderful picture, right, of God's work amongst Israel and God's ultimate goal, right, the, uh, God's ultimate goal because that goal is 
the ingathering of the nations. Is it not? And the reason, yes, it was from our first reading, is the reason that God, one, I have to be very careful with this. God, as we learned in Deuteronomy, expresses his love for Israel and the Jewish people because they're small and insignificant. It's, this, is, this is a um, really an expression of God's character. God chooses Israel out of love. But when he chooses Israel, he also calls Israel, right, to, dare I say the word in this country, to a mission. He calls Israel to, um, to bless and serve the nations, okay? Now, that can, why do I say be careful with that? Because it can be kind of utilitarian. Oh, the only reason that God chooses Israel is because he wants Israel to bless the nations. And by the way, since Jesus has now showed up, we really don't need Israel anymore or the Jewish people, and they can remain a museum piece. Yes, and we can come to the Holy Land and, uh, you know, see the holy sites and, you know, see... Jews celebrating Jewish holidays, and it will remind us or help us, you know, to better understand the Old Testament. That's very shallow. It's a very shallow understanding, right? God chooses, yes, the Jewish people, or God chooses Abraham and later the people of Israel in order to bring blessing and to serve the nations. Because the nations, as we read in Genesis chapter 11, are under a curse. They're under a curse. And God wants, even though we have sinned, even though we have rebelled, and what is the essence of our rebellion? The essence of human rebellion is very simply that we have rejected God's godness, right? We have confused the creation with the creator, and we have decided, yes, that we know best. Yes, that we know that we, know, we have eaten from the tree of good and evil, that we can make moral decisions for ourselves, and that uh, we don't need to do these things in reference to God. And of course, in blurring creation, right, uh, and the creator, we have come to a place of uh, incredible reversal, especially in the days in which we live, because we have divinized, right, or made sacred what all that is created, nature itself. And God is somebody that we use, where in the book of Genesis, nature was created for our benefit, right? And God was the creator, was totally and radically separate from that. And so we have robbed God's glory. We have distorted God or distorted who God is. And in the process, in the process of this rebellion or the process of this idolatry, we have brought upon ourselves a curse. We have brought upon ourselves the sting of death. We have brought upon ourselves um, moral confusion that leads to bloodshed. Yes, huge amounts of bloodshed.
and we have constructed idols. And these idols that we construct, right, these things that we serve, these uh, things that we worship, which are not God, these are, you might say, are the, the works of a few, mostly, they're, the, they're a construct of a futile human imagination. There is a demonic element in all of this, but I can assure you, human beings don't need the deception of the devil. We ourselves, since the fall, we ourselves are confused, and we ourselves are enmeshed in a lie. And so in uh, Genesis 11, we see the people of the earth lusting for power, lusting for glory, trying to kind of reach God, and you might say, in their own way. And God, of course, brings confusion. But God doesn't, the program doesn't end there, right? God still wants to bring blessing. And he is going to bring, bring blessing through the people of Israel. Yes, and choosing Israel doesn't mean he's excluding the nations. Choosing Israel means that he's including the nations. It's Abraham's job not just to be, a, not just to get blessed. It's Abraham's task. It's his mission. It's his calling, right, to bless the nations. And the nations will return that blessing to him, which hasn't, surely hasn't always happened. Yes, that's the intention and the purpose of God. But the nations, the nations are enmeshed in idolatry. And all that we read in the book of Zechariah, all that we read about the nations coming up, uh, they don't come up to Jerusalem. There's no ascent to Jerusalem until something critical happens. And that was in verse that was in chapter 13, 1 and 2. That the, the land of Israel, the people of God, have to first and foremost put away all forms of idolatry. And so do the nations. And only then will God be recognized as king. And throughout the Hebrew scriptures, and even into the New Testament, the issue that we sometimes overlook or don't give enough prominence to is the issue of idolatry, right? That, um, that, that idolatry isn't just something that the pagan nations practice. The focus of the prophets and the focus of the book of Deuteronomy isn't, for the most part, a radical condemnation of the nations of the world worshiping idols. The, the, the focus or the message is towards God's people, right? The problem of idolatry is first and foremost amongst the people of God. And therefore Israel has to be cleansed and Israel has to be purified because Israel has to be able to be a witness to the world or light to the world, right? And to project or to proclaim or to live out who, who is this God? Who is the one who creates heaven and earth? Yes, what does it mean to be radically dependent upon him? What does it mean to radically trust him? What does it mean to get our, 
What does it mean to get our identity from him, our security from him, our provision from him? What does it mean to um, have him alleviate those things that we fear? Right? And so the battle, yes, the battle is always, uh, first and foremost, as, um, as we read in the book of Ezekiel, the battle is always first and foremost for the purity and the rejection of idolatry amongst the people of God. Very well-known verse, which always speaks to me quite powerfully, is Ezekiel 36. It says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for my sake, uh, for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which have been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares um, the sovereign self Lord, when I show myself holy through you before, the, uh, before your, their, sorry, before their eyes. And so this idolatry, right, not only hurts Israel, Right? not only brings a curse upon Israel, all you have to do is read the, the uh, final chapters of Deuteronomy, especially Deuteronomy 32, which is read in the synagogue at this time of the year. Yes, that idolatry in any form carries with this uh, a horrible price. It brings, again, a curse. It will bring judgment. And I don't know anyone likes to talk about this, it brings ultimately um, confusion and destruction to God's, uh, to God's people. And Israel, of course, or people of God, uh, need to put away all forms of idolatry so that it can be the light to the nations. And when it's not the light to the nations, um, you may remember the verse from Ezekiel, judgment begins first, yes, with the people of God. And only then uh, does it extend to the nations themselves. Yes, that is probably, uh, I think, something that all of us will find uh, quite sobering. In the midst of all this, yeah, we can ask the question, well, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us as followers of Jesus or disciples of Jesus? How, and how does this relate? Well, God's heart is still for the nations, yes? And indeed, God's blessing, yes, and God's, you might say, work to bring the nations to himself um, began with the people of Israel, began with Jewish believers. They understood this to be, you know, their biblical mandate or their biblical mission. And of course now it continues through the church, as imperfect as we may be. And we will obviously say to ourselves, wait a minute, 
What, are, what idolatry are we talking about? All right? Because the, uh, the idolatry in the world is still, right, the very thing that imprisons and uh, enslaves the nations of the world. And every nation has their gods, their national gods, and every person, yes, is tempted or seduced to worship something other than the God of creation by worshiping something created instead of the creator himself. And especially for those of us who are Christians and especially Protestant Christians, we can easily say to ourselves, or deceptively deceive, or deceive ourselves in some way and say, well, you know, I don't know of any idolatry. I certainly don't worship statues. I don't have images. Um, all those things are things that have uh, somehow disappeared. But you know, the New Testament understands idolatry as something more, as something more than worshiping a statue or something more than worshiping a piece of wood. Paul three times talks about idolatry as being connected to greed, all right? There's a deeper understanding of the dangers of idolatry and what keeps the nations enslaved. And our challenge as believers, just as the people of Israel were challenged, our challenge as believers is to radically root out this idolatry and to radically be God's witnesses in the world or be God's witnesses amongst the nations and in Israel too, right? What it means, again, to be fully dependent upon God. You know, I've told this story before years ago, but I can, Leslie probably heard it, but I'll just mention it again. Some time ago, I was visiting uh, a person in Sarasota, Florida, and um, somehow we got on the subject of Christmas. And he said, well, we don't celebrate Christmas in this household because it's, you know, idolatry. I said, okay. And then this man proceeded to take me around his mansion located on Tampa Bay with a boat, with a very beautiful yacht uh, docked in front of his house with a, I looked like something I remember, it was like a five-car garage, um, multi-million dollar house. And as we went from room to room, I understood that this man he got his identity from owning this house. His security was in owning this house. Yet in the shallowest way, he told me, well, I'm not, I don't do idolatry. I don't do Christmas. And I think he's a good example because many of us reject the, uh, the facade or the outward forms of, what, of idolatry. But we have to ask ourselves the question, do we, or what is it, oh, sorry, maybe better yet, where is it do we get our security from? Ultimately, what gives us security? Where do we get our identity? 
Is our identity primarily in a nation state? Is it in an ethnic group? Is it in a political ideology? Is our identity to be found in the football club that we support? Which is a serious form of idolatry in many parts of the world, sport. Is it not? It's serious. And I speak as an avid supporter of the Liverpool Football Club, which is doing very poorly this year. <laughs> and what about the idolatry of the nation-state? Because after all, that's where our guarantee of our future will be. And nationalism, I'm not talking about loving one's country, and sacrificing for one's country, but nationalism can be a form of idolatry. Militarism can be a form of idolatry. And I'm not speaking as a pacifist. Sometimes it's unfortunately necessary to go to war. Or the market economy, capitalism, which has lifted more people out of poverty than any other economic system. But it can become an idol. It can become an idol, right? Those things, what gives us security? What gives us identity? Yes. What gives us provision? And if, we, if our ultimate trust is in, the, is in these things, I can guarantee you God will shake them once or twice, if not more, in our lifetime to see, yes, see what we indeed, where, what we indeed trust. And what about those things we fear? Yes, have you ever noticed that all the thing, what we fear becomes an idol? So we all fear disease and we all fear cancer. And for many of us, it becomes, you know, the medical system or science. Yes, that's what's going to save us. And when the medical system can't deliver, then we get angry because we spend billions of dollars, you know, on, on health, which is wonderful. But then along comes a little invisible virus that shuts down the world. Well, we spend billions of dollars and billions of more dollars on defense and guns and weapons, and we're still not secure, right? Because someone can take an airplane and fly it into a tall building. Right? None of these things, none of these things ultimately buy security. Right? And so the nations, again, are entrapped by these things. And the question is, are we, the church, the body of the Messiah, yes, God's witnesses in this world, yeah, how are we living out uh, this faith? Are we living it out in such a way, yes, that it provides an alternative? Or are we, do we mirror and copy the world? And so I think that for all of us, what's really, really critical, right, if we have God's heart for the nations, we have even God's heart for the Jewish people, yeah, we will radically, radically uh, ask for wisdom and discernment so that we can uproot 
in our uproot in our lives personally or uproot in the life of the church corporately by any form of idolatry. And why is the church important? Because salvation isn't individualistic, right? Salvation, God wants to save a people. God wants to dwell in a people. And if our lives are full of idolatry and one any form, then we don't have the presence of the Lord, right? And if there's no presence of the Lord in the life, the corporate life of the church, we're wasting our time. I'd like to remind you what Paul has to say to the people in Corinth. He says um, the following, what agreement, uh, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And what happened when Israel in the time of Ezekiel brought idols into the temple? The presence of the Lord left. The presence of the Lord just got up and, just, and the Lord said, I've had enough. I'm leaving this place. Okay? And for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. Since we have this promise, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Now, this is not just talking about pornography. As horrible as a pornography addiction can be. But it can be talking about the way that we latch on to a political leader and make, an, make a virtually uh, some kind of false, make a messiah out of this politician or that politician who's going to swing in and save us because after all, God is using them or our nation state, or the need that we need to go to war, or it could be you know, an addiction that we have, such as an addiction to gambling, right? Or it could be a, um, an issue that we have with immorality, or even compromise with the world, right? Because after all, the world has decided we'll play God and we'll decide what's right and wrong. And we oftentimes breathe in the spirit of our age and find ourselves being compromised or find ourselves being discouraged or find ourselves lacking courage, right? To be God's witnesses in a world that is indeed full of idolatry. Remember what Paul said. Paul said uh, when he's in Athens, talking about the nations, he said the following, and this surely is our message, but it's uh, no doubt begins, it no doubts begins with us. He said, um, talking to the Athenians, from one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth and be deter and, and he determined the time set for them 
and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your poets have said. We are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think of the divine being uh, is like gold or silver, an image made by man's design or skills. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. God is at work amongst the nations. Nations go up and nations go down so that hopefully they will seek him. Yes, but the message is that God is now, the time of ignorance is over and God is now requiring all to repent. And this, by the way, is Paul's message in the book of Acts when he goes to the Gentiles or in his first, the first letter that he writes to the Thessalonians in which he commends the Thessalonians for turning away from idols and serving Jesus the Messiah. Our gospel should always confront idolatry. The message of the gospel should confront idolatry. It's not done triumph in a triumphalistic way. It's done with a certain humility and a certain love. And it always first and foremost should challenge us. Yes, are we living in such a way to be a witness right, to the world around us, to both Jews and Gentiles, yes, that um, our life is not in anything, our, the fullness of our life is not to be found in anything created, but to be found in the Lord himself. I'd like to end by reminding us that in the end, the nations do come up to Jerusalem. With the book of Revelation envisions, right, this ascent to the holy city as the ascent to the new Jerusalem. And as the nations come up, what is it that they bring? They bring their glory. They bring their worship. They bring their gifts, right? They bring what God has, uh, what God has given each nation. Because each nation is not only enmeshed in idolatry, but each nation has been given a special gift by God as we, each ethnic group. And that's what's brought in uh, ultimately to Jerusalem, where there's this place of worship and submission and ultimately gratitude. So let's end by reading a psalm about the nations and about um, the place. And it's Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Now here's a phrase, this next phrase, we just tend to overlook, right? This is to the people of Israel. But now the people of Israel are to do what? Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds amongst all people. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. 
Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Where do we look for awe? Where do we look for fear? Where do we look for spirituality? Right? It's not in the things we as human beings create, but it's in the Lord himself. Right? But who's going to model that and show that alternative if it's not us? Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Do we believe that? Or is strength and glory in our economic system? Or my bank account? Or my family history? Because after all, we've been on this farm and in this country for 400 years. Where do we find strength? And what do we glorify? Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, not before Putin, not before, you know, the tottering economic system of the Western world, not before the rise of China, whatever, whatever thing we may fear. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, this is for us. The Lord reigns. The world is fully established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to do what? He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the nations in his truth. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.